we're in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Uh, last week, we looked through the first uh, few verses of that. We saw the end of chapter 3 of Timothy. Remember, Timothy, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. He's there to, to solve a problem that exists with false teachers and false teaching. And he has identified now some of the problems with leadership, the overseers and uh, the deacons and others. He's identified some of the, the, the situation, part of the problem, at least part, um, was a, a kind of a superior Christian view that was kind of a, a asceticism. It was a setting apart. It was a denial maybe of marriage. It was a denial of certain foods. It was, it was a, a, a type of um, following the, a, a strict legalistic um, Christianity, but it wasn't about butcher rules and regulations. It was a legalism of denial of self, certain things. And it kind of, it, it presented this view of, of elevation. It, it, it had a it frowned upon marriage. It frowned upon the normal everyday courses of life. There was also a group that was what we would call opposed to the law, antinomianism. It was a, an idea that they could, by grace, do whatever they wanted. So he, he, he said, you know, false teachers, it's what they teach and it's how they live. Now he's going to come and he's going to say, Timothy, in order for you to fight this, you have, you have to set the example in both the way you live and the way you speak. And so he speaks to him in verses 6 through 13, uh, 16. Verse 6 through 10, he's going to talk about uh, his life. And he's going to say develop godliness. And in verse 11 through 16, he's, he's really going to talk about the message. He's going to talk how you need to preach, teach the truth. And so let's look at this. In verse 6, he says, in pointing out these things to the brothers and sisters, these things is the error of their teaching and the error of those who are doing the teaching that's wrong, both the people and the message. He, he says this, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The, the word servant is the Greek word and literally diakonos. Uh, we saw it in chapter 3, uh, the same word, the ending was different because of the, of the declension of the noun, but it was, it's the word deacon. And only here he doesn't translate it deacon. The American Standard translates it servant. If you have the NIV, and many of you have the NIV, it's minister. Um, the fundamental word of diakonos, diakoneo, is to verb, is to serve, to be a servant or to serve. Uh, our term minister comes from it. So when we talk about someone who's a minister, it comes from this word, and it means to be one who serves. As I've shared, the, the technical usage is not in play here. The technical usage being deacon. That technical usage is only used twice in the New Testament, maybe three times, all by Paul. Philippians, when it talks about you know, the deacons say, hey. And then in, in 1 Timothy 3, correcting the falseness of those deacons. And then, as I said before, we as Baptists don't like to, to use this time in, in, in uh, Romans 16, when Phoebe is called a diaconess, and she's either being referred, diaconos, she's either being referred to as a deacon or a minister. <laughs> you name your poison, but one or the other, basically. But we'll just call her a faithful servant to women and just leave it at that and skip whatever truth may be there. <laughs> he's, not, he's, not, he's not denigrating Timothy and insulting him by calling him a deacon. <laughs> he is... I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's to all you deacons out. I was just kidding. I mean, he's not doing that, but I was just kidding about the denigrating. What he's saying is, you're a servant. By the way, and I said this before, people in a church who lead are first and foremost servants. I have to remind myself every day, my primary responsibility is to serve God and serve you. Before I lead anyone, 
my responsibility is to serve everyone. Now, that doesn't mean I do what you want, because sometimes what you want is not very bright, and I'm not going to do that. But I still serve you. Never choose someone to put them in a position to have any type of leadership if they have not demonstrated the humility of serving. I watch that very carefully. And I'm always aware of whether or not someone serves the way they should. And if I make a mistake and put them in a position of leadership and they're not really serving, I'll correct that mistake. I promise you. Serve, he says, Christ Jesus, nourish constantly on the words of faith and of the good or sound doctrine you have been following. He says every day you need to be nourished on the words of the faith. The faith is the, the, the faith in Christ, our faith, and the sound doctrine. Timothy, know, know the Scriptures. Now, you know, they didn't have much New Testament yet. I mean, Paul's writing it. There's some already been written. There may be, by the time 1 Timothy's written, there was something floating around. But a lot of it was in the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, which, you know, I've talked about many times. And they point to Christ. Um, He's saying, you you have everything you need. You take the scriptures. Take the sound, the good teaching, the good doctrine, which means there's a responsibility to weed out the bad doctrine, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. He said, and the false teaching is the bad doctrine. He says, this will grow you. You've been following that. And then I love verse 7 because it's such a sexist comment for Paul to make in the 21st century. Stay away from worthless stories that are typical of old women. (laughs) Now, the word old here means over a hundred so let me just point that out there. <laughs> I, you ever heard the phrase old wives tales? Uh, so I'm not going to get myself in any trouble by being stupid. I didn't live this long by being stupid. Well, I've been stupid a lot, but not in this capacity. One of the things we have to always remember uh, is in a letter like Timothy, there's a lot of cultural references. And it was pretty typical back then just to have kind of some things that were taught. We see it. There's, you know, there's this Hans Christian answer. You ever read all the stuff on Hans Christian answer? And, you know, some of the Disney stuff is based on what, things like that. If you read this true story, it's just a bunch of old tales. Well, the idea was a bunch of, <laughs> don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what it says. I'm going to talk to the men. Here's what it was, Noah. It was a bunch of, the idea was a bunch of women to sit around in old age telling yarns and stories to everybody else that were silly. That's what it was. So I just explained, Noah didn't know what it meant, so I explained it to him. But that's what it meant. What it really says is this. Stay away from worthless stories without merit and stories that are fanciful and silly. Stay away. Here's what was happening. All the stuff that the, that the false teachers, which were predominantly men, but were affecting men and women, were teaching, were just worthless and silly. A lot of people follow and believe stuff that's both worthless and silly. I am, to this day, I don't know why, still amazed by Christians. There's always some fad coming up, something that you got to do that's just worthless and, and silly. One of, my, one of the ones I think about um, was the whole what would Jesus do phenomenon. What would Jesus do? Well, I don't know what he would do. I know what he did. I know what he taught. So I always was like, well, what did Jesus teach? Because I don't know exactly what he would do, and you don't either. Though, you know, unless, unless you come across someone who, you know, is deaf and dumb, well, he would heal them. You can't do that, you know. 
You know, I mean, unless you came across someone who was blind, you would help them to see, but you can't do that. And most of the time, what Jesus would do was not be in the dumb situation you were in to begin with. So, you know, it, and, and, and I see, I remember when the movie The Shack came out. Everybody loved the movie The Shack. And I was inundated by people, Pastor, have you read The Shack? No, no, because I read the synopsis and it's, it's heresy. I'm sorry. You realize the book, The Shack, is heresy. Amen. It's pure heresy. Thank you. Read it. Read it. It's good. And so we get caught up in all these fads. We were talking the other day about, and the staff, uh, there was something came out. I'm going to talk about that. We were talking about when everybody was doing the prayer of Jabez. Everybody's doing the prayer of Jabez. And I'm like, why don't you just do the Lord's Prayer? Because here's what Jesus said. When you pray, pray like this. And he didn't quote the prayer of Jabez, which is some obscure prayer found somewhere in the Pentateuch. I, I've always thought that was a good prayer. The prayer of Jabez is a good prayer if you lived in Israel 4,000 years ago and looking for the blessings of God. But I live in America in the 21st century and I'm a Christian. So instead of the prayer of Jabez, I'll just do the Lord's Prayer. I haven't figured that one out yet. You realize I haven't got that prayer right yet? I don't need to advance any of the prayers until I figure that one. And what I'm saying in all this is, don't get caught up in all the fads. Discipline yourself for the purpose. And here's the key of godliness. Live the way God wants you to live. In just a minute, we'll see how that's done. Bodily training is just slightly beneficial. But godliness is beneficial in all things since it holds to the promise for the present life and for the life to come. Now, Bodily training, and the easy thing, and I think this is probably correct, means to, you know, the training of an athlete. Some think it, it might mean the types of asceticism, like some degree of celibacy or some degree of, of uh, not eating everything might be good. And maybe, it just says, when you train your body, that's good. But training godliness spiritually, the godliness affects your mind, it affects your soul, it affects everything in your life. That is superior. He's saying, Timothy... You need to live a godly life. It holds promise for the present life and the life to come. When you train yourself physically, it's good for this life. It doesn't help you in the life to come. But godliness has an eternal benefit. And you need to strive for that. So he says, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, what he just said. For it is for this we labor and strife. The concept of labor and strife is hard work. Christianity is hard, by the way. Joe and I were just talking a while ago about you know church, church, what we church life, and trying to help people come to Christ. It's hard. It is hard because we have set our hope on the living God, who is get this the Savior of all mankind, especially of all believers. This is can be a difficult phrase. Some think it means universalism, that God saves everyone. Doesn't really mean that. It means this. Mankind has always sought after deity, still does to this day. The only one who saves is God. The Savior of all is God. There is no, there's no other type of salvation, especially or most assuredly for those who believe. So everyone needs to understand their only hope of salvation is in God, but most assuredly, those who believe know that. So here's what he's saying, Timothy. When you avail yourselves to the scriptures, when you avail yourself 
to growing the way God wants you to grow. You're going to live a life, and we'll see more of this in a minute, that is an example. Because you're going to, when you face false, you know what the false teachers do? They fight back. Oh, they always fight back. They really go to battle. And they'll attack. You know, you know what? I can't, if someone's a false teacher, I can't really attack them. Now, sometimes I do, but I'm not supposed to. But they always attack back. They say things about your character, about your ministry, about your church. They always attack. Oh, that church. I left that church because they don't believe the Bible. Well, no, we just don't believe what you teach is correct. We believe the Bible. We just believe you're a false teacher. But, you know, they, they, they'll always come after you. So one of, the, one of the cures is to be sure that you and the people you serve look to live a godly life. All of us should seek the godly life. Now, we're going to make mistakes. I know that. But the best way to do that is to understand what the Scriptures teach. Now, we're going we're to see more of that as he comes on. So he comes to the second part, which you've got to have to follow up on this. Here's what he says. Prescribe and teach these things. I think the NIV has command. New Living Translation says, teach these things intently. He says, the truth that I'm teaching, this, this, this is for what goes ahead and behind, both everything, you know, before and after. You need, you need to command, and, and this doesn't mean order, but it means encourage. Say, this is truth. Teach these things. Um, so, there are a lot of times that, for me, that, you know, we may not agree on certain things. Since there's not really that important, I'm like, that's okay. You know, I, I'm, I'm good with that. But something that's important, I'm going to be pretty insistent. Baptism. I'm pretty insistent as a pastor. Baptism is by immersion for believers. I don't deviate from that. I don't say, well, it's, it's, you don't have to be immersed. You can just get in there and we'll, you know, do this to you. Just throw the water. Now, I have had to do that one time when a, when a really old lady refused to go under. I kind of had to, like, and the, like, this part of her body wouldn't go under. I'm like. <laughs> I had a guy ask me one time, one time, you know, it, it was in Bridgeport. And this was one of the problem guys. He thought, you know, whatever. Well, my son, it's time for him to be baptized. I'm like, Brent, he hasn't, has he come to faith in Christ yet? We are talking about coming to Jesus. Well, it's this time he'd be baptized. I said, well, we ain't baptizing him, brother, until he comes to Christ. Because we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. We don't bend on that. Now, there are certain things you teach adamantly. Notice what he says in verse 2. I love this. I love this when I was young. Uh, I don't know when being young stopped, but I think I passed it. It's like one day I got pulled over by a police officer. I, knew, I didn't know what the speed limit was, but I, I did know that I had passed it. Uh, that part I assumed to be correct. Um, so, you know, we agreed on that. Now, let me say this about youthfulness. I, we think of young, it depends on how old you are. You know, I remember when I was uh, in my 20s, I started in the ministry when I was 19, and I knew I was young. And I always felt that when I hit 30, I would gain respect. 
I did. I had a baby face and a half. So um, I, I grew a mustache for a long time because it made me look a little harder or harsh. <laughs> My wife said, you don't need to look hard or harsh. You already are hard or harsh, okay? And, but I thought, I'm going to be 30 and I get respect. And, and really, it doesn't happen. Because um, there's always people older than you. <laughs> well, not so much anymore. But for a long time, there was always people older than you. Uh, youthfulness in Jewish times was anybody 30, 35. I mean, you didn't, they weren't, you were considered young. They didn't have middle age. You were young, you were old. And, um, you know, and that's, it, so this could be, well, Timothy's probably in his 30s. Don't let anyone look down on you for your youthfulness. I love the NIV says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And I used to, all, and that was, I was that way. I, when I was young, I was so cocky. I was almost arrogant, except I had enough humility to know that I was that way, I guess. So, but I mean, I was, and you know, and, and I didn't like people looking down when I was young. And, and I had people more than one occasion tell me, you know, you're too young and experienced to know what you're talking about. And I always had a reply that was witty and smart. And now when people, well, I was past, but no one says I'm too young for anything anymore. But um, he said, but he says, how do you keep them from looking down on you young? Not by being arrogant and cocky and telling them not to. He says, here's how you do it. But rather in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Show yourself an example to the believers. Hey, Timothy, you may be young, but if the way you talk to people, and the way you live your life, and the way you love the old coots who think you're young, and the way you live with the faith that God gave you, and the purity and immorality of your life, you'll set an example. And they will look down upon you because you're young. By the way, that's for all of us, not just the young. We tell the young, you do this. No, all of us need to do that. Here I am. You know, I'm 61. And I still need to watch what I say. And how I treat people, and to love people, to have faith, and to be pure. Because no matter what else happens, I can be good at X, Y, or Z, and I can be brilliant at A, B, and C. I'm not saying that I am, but I could be. But if I fail in those areas, even one time, all of my credibility is shot. And everything I've worked for the Lord to achieve is done. Because of my sin. Because I refused in my arrogance to watch what I say and do and how I have faith and I love and my purity. Many a really, really good pastor has destroyed his life, his family's life, the life of others his ministry, and sometimes his church for a brief period of time because he has failed in that area. And many a husband and wife, in male or female, has done likewise in their life. Until I come, give your attention, notice what he says, to the public reading, that is of Scripture, to exhortation, 
and the teaching. Timothy, this is what you need to do, brother. You set that example, and then here's what you're going to do. You're going to go before that church. And he's talking specifically to Timothy. You're going to open up the Word of God, and you're going to preach it, and you're going to teach it. Now, some think that this is a call to a particular, you know, a, a, a worship setting, and how do you have worship? Maybe, but I don't think that's what Paul's doing. They think he's telling Timothy, look, you got to get after it. And, and if you're going to fight false teachers and false teaching, ultimately, you have, <laughs> you have this printout of 1 Timothy, which is the Scriptures. And you're going to read it to them, and you're going to teach it and preach it. Now, reading Scripture is important. And so when we, when, you know, when we, I'm reading Scripture to you, when I preach, you know, I read it. Now, I don't hold up my fake leather-bound Bible anymore and read it because the words just aren't there. And even with glasses on, I have to get a large print. Or if you just get a large print, we just put it up on the screen. It's the same thing. Preaching and teaching, there's subtle differences. Well, I'm teaching now. Teaching is the giving of information. It's the giving of content and maybe the, the application of that content. Preaching is the giving of information in a way that it tends to be persuasive. When I preach, I am trying to persuade. So on Sundays when I preach and I give an invitation, oftentimes I'm trying to persuade people to come to a particular place in their life, whether they believe something or do something or stop doing something. Fundamentally, what I'm just doing now is giving them the information and leaving that up to you. And so the two go together. And the major way we combat what is false in the church is through the influence that I have and others have when we take the scriptures and read it and then either preach it or teach it. That's why we put so much emphasis on that. That's, that's why that is the heart and soul of so much of what we do. And, you know, in worship with music and all that, it's all part, it's all part of it. And, that's the, and so that's how we deal with things. And so that's what we need to do. But in order for us to be effective, our conduct has to match it. Now, in your everyday life, you may not preach, you may teach, but you still have the ability to take and you deal with other people, the scriptures, and open it up and work through that with them. You can read the scriptures and you can help people deal with that. But to have consistency and credibility, your life has to match what you say. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was granted to you through words of prophecy and the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Now, the spiritual gift most likely is related to the preaching and teaching. This is very specific to Timothy. And what he's saying is, and some people think this, you know, refers to an earlier event. It's similar to what you see in Acts 13, 1 through 3 with Paul and Barnabas. It has to do with this. The idea of the prophecy was the recognition of some about the gift of Timothy. And then evidently elders came and they laid hands on him. We, we, we tend to call this a type of ordination. And rightly so, I guess. It's not like they had the gift and gave it to him and transferred it to him. It's not what that means. It means that Timothy was gifted. All gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Fundamental teaching, all gifts come from the Holy Spirit. So the gift that this Timothy had was recognized publicly, but that's an important. And the laying on of hands said they set him apart towards God. Let me just say this. At an early age, people recognized that God had gifted me with certain things. When I had been in ministry a couple of years and I was serving on staff at Northside, Northside Baptist decided, along with my home church, Park Hills, to ordain me and set me aside. 
It did not transfer anything to me. It did not give me any special powers. It was a recognition. Now, here's the thing about ordination. And I'm, I'm not as, I don't do a lot of ordaining. I really don't. There's an importance to ordination, I think, for a minister because it, it, it says, hey, the church, the church recognizes your gift. I go back to that date when I was 21 years of age, and the church set me apart and recognized that I had a gift. And I know the guys do the same thing. And, you know, we've, re- and I've ordained, you know, we've ordained Josh, we've ordained Troy, uh, we ordained uh, Scott, from, but from missions. We ordained anybody else since been here? Who else? Is that it? There's three, right? And that's it. I, because here's our problem. The purpose of ordination is to set you apart towards something. And all too often we take ordination to set us apart from some people. We have taken ordination to set us apart from people. And ordination is all it really means is a recognition that you've been set apart to do the work that God has called you to do. So I'm not really big on ordaining. I don't really like, I honestly, you know, don't get mad at me. I don't even know why we ordain deacons. It's not in the Bible anywhere. And what we have done as Baptists is we have taken the concept of ordination and we have taken a group of men. Here's what ends up happening time after time after time. I know I've dealt with it so much as they think they're set apart from everybody else. Doc on it, it's supposed to mean you were set apart to do something, not to be from someone. And we've just messed that whole thing up. And we do it with ministers. Well, we do it with ministers all the time. I'm ordained. Who cares? Only an ordained minister can baptize. That's not true. Only an ordained minister can preach. That's not true. None of that's true. Scriptures never teach that. Ordination is a recognition. He says, Timothy, take that recognition as an encouragement. That's what it does for me. My ordination encourages me. It reminds me that I serve people and I serve God. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so your progress will be evident to all. The progress that comes from being a servant, back and forth, verse 6. Timothy, that progress of serving people needs to be evident to everyone. I have failed if you don't think of me as a person who serves Christ and serves you. I have failed. So, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. (laughs) Figure it out, Timothy, how you live, what you teach. Persevere in these things. Why? Because it's tough. Go back to verse 10. You labor in strife, so persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In verse 10, he says, God is the Savior of my account, especially believers. Here's what he's saying is this. If you, will, if you will persevere in confronting these false teachers, and if the church will persevere for us in confronting these false teachers in the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves and what we teach and preach, then we will save ourselves in the sense that we will be sanctified and keep growing, but we will see other people come to Christ. We're not saving them. God and Christ, by the Holy Spirit, saves them. We know that. But what he's saying is this. You will see people's lives changed. And your life will continue to grow in Christ. That's what that means. And isn't that really the purpose of why we're here? We honor God, and what do we do? We help people come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And then what am I doing right now? I'm helping us, you and me, together to grow. I'm teaching truth so that we will grow in our faith and we'll have the skills and the tools and the spiritual disciplines necessary to combat the false teaching in the church and outside the church. It is a struggle, a constant struggle. 
And if we are serving God and serving people and growing in our understanding of doctrine and truth and loving people and caring for people and guarding our speech and conduct and being pure and combating false teachers and false teachings in love, we will see people saved. And we will save ourselves from error and heresy and we will grow as followers of Christ. In the end, that's really what we're supposed to do. Honor God, help people come to Jesus, and grow as a follower of Jesus. And with that, I will see you in two weeks.